Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Term show, Nick and I sit down and we discuss the economy at a higher level than we did last week. Last week, we dove into some of the real estate things that we're seeing around the GTA and the Toronto area. This time, we talk about the economy more at a higher level. We talk about Canada and the US, and the reason we talk about the US so much, just so you're aware, is that they are still the biggest economy in the world. We happen to be their little neighbor that sits on a big landmass, but economically, we're their little neighbor and they have a massive impact on us. And whatever they do around monetary policy or fiscal policy, we tend to duplicate in this country. So it would be silly for us not to pay attention to what's going on in the U.S. So on this episode, we chat all the big level stuff. We could go on and on about this material, but we think we covered most of what we wanted to on this particular episode. So enjoy this kind of stuff. Over the next few weeks, we have a few people that are coming onto this podcast. Actually, one we just recorded and a couple more that are all going to be about the economic stuff just because the economy going forward is everyone's mystery. Everybody's trying to figure it out. And it has an impact on our incomes, our, our cash flows on properties, property prices, interest rates, the whole thing. So we'll talk more about this. And Nick committed to doing a battle of the, a Bitcoin battle of the brothers, where we're going to debate Bitcoin back and forth on an episode. So that'll be coming out at some point. We don't really have a plan for that. That just spontaneously kind of happened. So stay tuned for that as well. Um, and if you are listening to this and you want to get some real estate information around what we are doing with investors all through the Golden Horseshoe and the greater Toronto area, you can come to a free real estate investing class that we do about once a month, which is an introduction to what we're doing here at Rockstar with investors. And we share the latest property prices and cash flow numbers and how we're investing. You can get access to that class by visiting rockstarinnercircle.com. And if you look for the free investor class link on that site, it's a big red button in two different places. You can sign up for the next class. And that URL again is www.rockstarinnercircle.com. Go there, find the big red button in two different places, sign up for the next class. Nick and I are both live on that class. We do live Q&A at the end of that class. So any real estate questions that are on your mind or that you have listened to the presentation, have a question on, you can submit your questions. We typically tackle all of them. So we stay on for quite some time after the class doing a live Q&A. We're doing them virtually right now through Zoom. So you can register for the next class where we talk about all the cash flow numbers, the property prices, the different strategies from student rentals to duplexes to small apartments buildings to land and infill projects here in the GTA and Golden Horseshoe, all of it. You can get access to that class at www.rockstarinnercircle.com. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life your term show with Tom and Nick Caradza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, since we screwed up the last one really good, are you there? Like, no. can you hear me? And let me make sure I can hear you. Because now it was all jokes until last the last one together, we messed it up. Until you, yeah, that's right. I forgot about the mic. Yeah. 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 And now you messed it up because you were speaking to a mic that I had off in the corner of the table instead of the one that I had positioned for you. So it's not my fault. Older brother is not taking the blame on that one. I'm not even responding to any of this. I'll just let you continue. <laughs> okay, well, look, we have important topics, uh, topics to talk about. So uh, we'll go right into this. This is more a big picture macroeconomic thing. If you and I are qualified to talk about macroeconomics, which I'm not sure we are. So if you're listening to this, just realize who you're listening to. But this is the stuff we look at for our own analysis of what the heck is happening in the world. So it's more us sharing our own thinking. And then you can take this thinking away and decide if it gives you something to think about or you want to toss it in the garbage. <laughs> well, it's the benefit of like the time we live in that all this stuff is so readily available. The only the biggest challenge with it is it's all kind of piecemeal. You kind of got to piece it together and then figure out the puzzle for yourself and determine what the puzzle means means for you or like what puzzle you're building because what I'm believing from the same information might not be the same thing you're believing. You know and I mean? so much of it is like short term. Like it's hard. It, yeah. it, you know, it's kind of like, oh, gold is good. Oh, interest rates are going up. Oh, no, interest rates are going to stay low. Like, it's so kind of reactive that you need to take a step back and look at the big picture. We, live, we live in like a clickbait society. Yeah. Everything is just clicked the headline. I'll give the media credit. Their headline writing ability over the last oh. one or five years has increased dramatically. 
because it used to be all just kind of more mundane, boring stuff. And then they realized that if you do it that way, you're not getting anything. No one's viewing your article. So now it's all clickbaity stuff. It doesn't even matter if there's real, like good information. The headline is still clickbaity so the, to try to get your attention. Otherwise, you can't break through the noise. If they just valued their work early on in the internet cycle and didn't go to free and rely on ad revenue, if they put up a paywall earlier and said, mm-hmm. hey, we're the Toronto Star, we're Bloomberg. Bloomberg has a paywall now, Toronto. So they all have them now. But if they just did that at the very beginning instead of competing for free it's kind of like a race to the bottom on price on anything you sell in any business when you race to the bottom the product gets worse and customers aren't happy your business has no margins and that kind of happened with media and the googles and facebooks of the world just exploited them well they, they just exploited them like just think of how much you know how much traffic and free eyes and attention google got or ad revenue they got from the other content that they were kind of aggregating it's like they just outright exploited the media companies for years and years and years. And now finally they're looking at doing something about it. But I think it's too late. I don't think it's going to be able to. Yeah, do, you're, make, to you're making me think of something I thought we we're going to get to later. Just how, you know, how, how I keep talking about like how MP3s destroyed the music industry, specifically distribution of the music industry. I was just talking to Anthony on our team about Napster. I'm like, do you remember Napster? And he's no he's, way he, he does, doesn't does remember it. it. No, I'm like, oh, dude, you could rip anything down you wanted on Napster. Um, but what MP3s did to the music industry is what I still believe Bitcoin's going to do to the finance industry and they don't see it coming, just like the media companies didn't see Google and Yahoo and all these other portals, because those were sold as portals and search engines. They they just looked at the search engine and they thought, well, that Google's a search engine. We are a media company. There's no way Google's going to dominate us. And I think that's the same thinking where the finance industry is looking at something like Bitcoin and going, well, that's just this cryptocurrency. It's not going to dominate us. We are Wall Street. And I think they're going to get blindsided. This might take 10 years to play out, but I think they're going to get blindsided. What's interesting about that, if you use that analogy, is because it's actually come full circle because the media industry, uh, sorry, the music industry is in a better situation now, revenue-wise, than it has been for a a number of years. So at first it hurt them, and then they changed the model. And then now because of streaming and all that stuff, they're actually, their revenues have gone up and they're better than they ever were. So... It's interesting. So they blind they blindsided them and they hurt them, but long term they didn't hurt them. It's actually they've they've kind of had to the models change and they've sure they've, they've well they did hurt it. the HMVs and the same the record man. Oh, there I'm was talking, that wiping out. I'm but you're about right, the, the artists and the per- yeah to, yeah the, that the helped studios. for sure for sure yeah, yeah totally they had to be able to own their own music in a much better capacity. I don't know the ins and outs of that business model. We should bring somebody on to talk about that because that would be really cool to understand how the industry changed from like 1995 to 2020. But anyway, let's get on with this important stuff. So what I want to start with is this headline, the Bank of Canada said they're open to negative rates. They're open to negative rates. And at the same time earlier this year, they said something that I want to come back to, which they said that they are, the central banks need to move fast on digital currency. So this is a theme I want to kind of come back to, but it's something that kind of caught my attention is that they're open to negative rates and more and more people are talking about, do you remember a few years ago where like negative interest rates are never going to come to People said it was crazy. Yeah. And we said it wasn't. Remember we were like, no, negative rates are going to stay lower for longer and they might even go negative. And they're like, well, no, not in Canada. But when you look at the the world, there's negative rates almost all around the world, except for places like North America. How is it not coming here? I think it's a little naive to think we're not going to see negative interest rates. But this whole digital digital currency thing I want to talk about as well. But then I want to kind of skip forward, Nick, to this stuff, which is more like, you know how the Canadian employment numbers kind of look, are it, they're reported as being really good. You know, when you see in the media, it's like, oh, another, I think October's number for this year um, 2020 yeah, are like created more jobs and the unemployment rate fell 80, slightly. Yeah. The employment rates down and more jobs. So when you look at that at a cursory level, I think you kind of are, you, you can think that, Oh, things are kind of back on track that, you know, the economy is kind of going the right way. But then you see other headlines like the Hudson's Bay headline, where some of the three biggest landlords that Hudson Bay rents from are suing them, or it's one big landlord in three locations. I have the headline later. I can show it to you. Um, and then you see that restaurant chain downtown Toronto yesterday. I think it's they own it's the parent company that owns like Buka, Jacob Steakhouse, and a bunch of other ones, and they're filing for insolvency. And that's not a huge company, but I'm just wondering that if we see all this employment number, kind of you kind of could get the idea that oh things are coming back. But then at the flip side, you're seeing this stuff where Hudson's Bay is not paying their rent, Starbucks in downtown Oakville has gone. 
Um, you're seeing all these other things. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of companies I think waiting for um, trying to make it through to the Christmas season because whether it's restaurants or retail, a lot will happen then during the holidays for them. Um, but it's not going to be that. It's just not going to be like that this year. There's just been too much fear bred into the you know into the general population and. You know, and, and not with the restrictions, restaurants aren't going to be able to hit the numbers they normally hit. Retail is going to be a fraction of what it was. It's going to be all e-commerce because people are scared to go out. You know, whether whether people agree to be scared, like whether people think it's right for other people to be scared to go out or not, it, it doesn't matter. Like, you know, remove that from the conversation because that's what's happening. So I think after Christmas, we're gonna, we're seeing some of this and some will hold on. And then after Christmas, we'll start seeing a little bit more of a domino effect of of these announcements coming out of people that are going to be hit longer term or and companies. I, and I think some of the reasons we haven't seen even more of this stuff is you found this from CIBC, where CIBC put out this chart saying the compensation of employees during this COVID wave has fallen by X percentage. But when you include government transfers in that number, household disposable income is actually up year over year. Because of all the transfers. So when when disposable income is up, it allows everybody to build a patio in their backyard, buy lumber because everybody's buying lumber because you can't find lumber. You have to drive to freaking, you have to drive into the forest yourself and <laughs> cut down a tree and build and, 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 and make planks out of them to get your lumber because... Hasn't that, has that changed? That must have changed by now, no? I don't know. I was just summer, talking to someone the other day. Yeah. Actually, I was just talking to Miro, my brother-in-law, to finish a product, uh, project in Wasega Beach. This, to be fair, was about six weeks ago. So maybe it has changed. They were short. It was for the OPP and they were short six planks of, I guess, this fencing system that they were building. And they somebody had to drive to like Thunder Bay to get these six planks that they needed to finish the project so they could invoice it. So I, I don't know if it's completely over, but definitely mayhem has, uh, has, has, has been going on. And then not only in Canada, we pulled up personal income from the St. Louis Federal Reserve. And when you, if, you, if you're sitting at home listening to this, not if you're on the road or something, but if you Google up St. Louis Federal Reserve and you pull up the personal income chart, you will see the freakiest thing where personal income has been like inching up forward, kind of like at this very, very slow pace. Definitely not been keeping up with asset prices or anything like that. But then if you look in the last six months, personal income in the U.S. skyrockets up. Like it just shoots up. And so it's coming It's coming down a little bit now. But even in, so in Canada and the U.S., we've had a situation where personal incomes have gone through the roof. And then that brings us to real estate back here. And when we look at the year-over-year numbers, I just checked. I couldn't get the latest October numbers, even though we're November now. I, the, the, some of the TREB regional board stuff. They've been released. Have they been yeah, released? Okay. Been for whatever reason, I couldn't pull yeah, them up. a few days ago. They were not... not yeah, just, I, just I found the high-level ones, but I couldn't find where they break it out. Detached, semi-detached, townhouse, and condo. Oh, maybe. Yeah. But the high-level ones, like, up 13% overall. Um, and then if we look September, detached homes are up 16.9%. Semi-detached year-over-year is up 14.7%. Townhouses are up 12%. And condos are even up 8% year-over-year, which seems crazy. You were talking about on our previous podcast that, um, you know, a condo market, if listings continue to increase at the pace that we're seeing them, that's definitely going to soften. But like when you see all the money come into the system that has been coming into the system and everybody's getting the shelter-in-place kind of orders... It's no surprise that all these property prices are going up at this level, like 16.9% year over year. That's insane. Yeah. Yeah. Th those numbers just, I, I, to me, they're just always so skewed. So it doesn't even matter. Yeah, but we need something to talk about. Like I understand they're skewed based on different communities and different properties st stuff, but we need well, time some of year framework. too, because we removed, we removed the spring market. We have to, we have to push everything back. Right, because what really should have happened is we should have taken July's, August, September's numbers and moved it back to March, April, and May's numbers, and then October's, you know, or September and October should be June and July, because we missed the spring market. So we're comparing things. That's why th this year's even more screwed up than. Yeah, so I get I'm, it. I get your point. I, and, and Prices are where, going up, and that's I see where you're coming from. But that's my. But yeah, that's where I'm yeah. coming from. I'm like, they're not down sixteen percent. No, they're, no, I agree. I'm always just like, I'm trying to figure out what's really going on but because I, I never believe any headlines. But you're absolutely right. Prices mm -hmm. are going up. So. And, and, and strongly, especially in the detached market in a number of areas, yes. And then in the U.S., from this is the data that we're just digging through all the different people we kind of read and reports that we look at and headlines that we pull, is that the U.S. Treasuries that were issued um, through COVID, when they put out the trillions of dollars of uh, up just about $4 trillion worth of stimulus, $2.2 was bought by the, uh, by the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve bought about half of all the stimulus that went out. 2.2 trillion there were no buyers for and the fed had to go in and buy these treasuries so the fed monetized 2.2 trillion dollars worth of debt and they're going to be monetizing a lot more 
in the upcoming months. Exactly. Because it doesn't matter who, like I I know Biden's, you know, declaring victory and some people are saying, well, it's still not over because there's some recounts and that type of stuff. But so I'll say it doesn't matter, but you know, but if it's Biden or Trump, you know, and most likely Biden, obviously there's going to be a lot more spending coming down the pipe to the tune of probably like closer to three to 4 trillion. It's not. Except I was talking to Marco about, and he was kind of reminding me that the, the Republicans control the Senate. So the Senate, and be, if the Democrats had controlled the yeah, Senate, yeah. So then they, they might, can just like wash it right through. But now there'll be a battle. So maybe yeah. it'll come so in so at like a two, two to three. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. So it might be one, I almost, one trillion less. I almost, this sounds awful because of everything we believe in with like hard money and, you know, no inflation and stuff. But part of me almost wishes the Democrats got the Senate too, because I just want to see what they push through. Like, would they have pushed through like a six trillion dollar? Well, they might still get it. They might, in two months, we might know. Yeah, I, I, I saw Rickards calling out that like, uh, I think it's December 8th is it what he's thinking everything will be settled by no the senate is there'll be a runoff there's two seats and i think is it arizona arkansas somewhere is oh, it because no one got 50.1 percent of the vote so it looks like there's going to be two runoffs between the two lead candidates and then that will determine because right now it's 49 49 and there's one more that will be decided and then and then there's these two seats that are going to be a runoff because no one got enough of the vote um and that i think that'll happen in january and that will determine the senate yeah got it i'm referring to the presidency yeah yeah, he's talking about December eighth, and I forget why he's talking about December eighth. Because the courts, I think that's the courts. That that, that's what he thought. So the courts are going to rule on Pennsylvania by December eighth. I don't know something. Like, well, that's what they did in in Florida. It took till about mid December, yeah. right before yeah, they finally. Conceded. Right. I think it was yeah. like thirty six days or something. No, like it was forty something. I heard the day the other. Something no, I'm else. pretty sure it was thirty six. I'm just telling you. No, you're a little. Trying brother. to educate you're little, you. No, you're a little. Look, I'll look it, it up on Google. Yeah, I think I'm pretty sure it's thirty six. <laughs> um, okay, let's keep going. Um, no, but yeah, look that up. Look that up. Uh, the Federal Reserve, um, yeah, bought all that stuff. And then I think what caught Nick and I, what caught our eye, just for everyone listening, is that right in the middle of March, when crap was really hitting the fan and the markets were selling off, like everyone sold everything in March. Like equities were being dumped, the stock market was being dumped, treasuries were being dumped, everything was going to be, was being dumped at that point. And the, or the interesting part of that is what it tells us is that when crap hits the fan, everybody was running to cash. Everybody, oh, Nick was, has an update. Yeah, it was 32 days. Oh, 32. I said 36, <laughs> so I'm wrong too. I'm, I'm wrong too. Still, I just don't like it. should have started with a four. I should have just lied. I should have just lied. It's 42. But uh, what's interesting in March is that everyone ran to cash. So when crap hits the fan, everybody currently ran to cash. I think that's going to change in the future, but everybody ran to cash. And the reason that we know that they ran to cash is the yield uh, spiked right in the middle of March. You can see interest rates spiked in the middle of March as everybody was selling everything off. And that was the, Nick, remember that weekend right in the middle of March? I think it was right at the end of March break here in Canada where you and I were talking and we're like, you can smell it in the air. The banks are panicked. And we were telling everyone, hey, listen, get access to cash right now because if they don't figure this out, if they don't flush the liquidity, and that's when they came with the trillions of dollars, there's going to be a credit crunch here and you're not going to get access to any credit lines or any cash that you might have. And it started. It started. It, it, they hit it well, but they started reducing the amount of funds people could take out of the bank. Like they, they, it, it started. It started. And you can see now in the data. So this data, if you Google up, if you want to see this for yourself, if you Google up St. Louis Federal Reserve 10-year treasury constant maturity rate, you can see the yield spike right in the middle of March. And that yield spike is indicative of everybody dumping treasuries. So that to us is really interesting that when crap hits the fan, everybody runs the cash. And then the Fed came in and they printed and bought $75 billion a day, a, a day of treasuries for three weeks. I just want to repeat this. The Fed bought $75 billion a day of treasuries in late March for three weeks. Think about that. That's completely insane. So in three weeks, they gobbled up just about a trillion dollars worth of treasuries just to bring that inter- that yield down because they can't have interest rates high. So anyone out there who's, if anyone left, is if there's anyone left in the world or definitely in the country of Canada who thinks interest rates are going up, to me, this is absolute proof that the Federal Reserve will not let, let interest rates go up if when they spiked up in March, they bought $75 billion a day for three weeks. There's got to be a big change in, in kind of some, a lot of underlying factors for that, for that to be able to change. happen because there's so much debt. If they, if interest rates allow, you know, to let's just spike up, not to go up, you know, like if long-term rates because of the bond yields go up a small percentage, that's, that's, that's one thing, but for things to really move where it's, it's like really impactful, 
it's so unlikely. There are so many underlying factors that are preventing that. And if you look at even just recent history, like in places like Japan, it's just they, they're just not able to do it. It's just, yeah, yeah. So then now when we look forward, so if we go through history now, if we go back about 100 years and we look at this era of 1930s and 1940s, what's really interesting about looking in that, that era is in the 1930s, the Fed definitely started running, you know, they, they, made, they made the possession of gold by citizens illegal. They tried to force inflation that way. They started running deficits. But it wasn't really till this global thing, which was like World War II, that they really started ramping up the money printing, which is, I know we don't have a world war right Right now but we definitely have a global pandemic that has been going on right now and if you look back into the 1940s so for the 1930s they increased deficits in a large way but then they just went 10 times what they were doing in the 30s and the 1940s and they increased everything the amount of cash in the system the amount of treasuries in the system the the, the certificates in the system by 10 times in the 1940s so they got really aggressive and what's interesting about that is if you bought treasuries in the 1940s, the nominal growth, so before inflation, you know, if you bought $10,000 of treasuries, so this, by the way, this is from one of Robert Schiller's reports, and I'm sure everyone's, you know, familiar with that name. If you follow economics in the U.S. at all, you'll, you'll know this guy's name, but this is one of the data points he puts out, that from 1940 to 1952, if you bought $10,000 in 10-year 10 treasury, so like right through the 40s, so 1941 to 51, sorry, the nominal growth in it went from 10000 to 12694 bucks, which sounds really good, right? Like my money went up. But then if you take into account inflation and you subtract the increase in cost of goods and what your purchasing power would get you at the end of that 10 years, your $10,000 invested in 1940, 1951, the real value of it was $6,754. So if that's coming our so that's way- That's a big difference, that's 50%. That's a 50, Yeah, because you look at the numbers and you're like, well, I had 10, I have 12, it looks good. Yeah. But then when you go to spend the money, everything around you is more expensive, so you only have $6,700 worth of purchasing power. It's no different than what we're seeing today. Over no different over the last five years because like even if you invest let's say you invest in whatever stock right you're like oh this is great i put ten thousand dollars in it's worth what, what what's it worth to you know whatever it's worth today but what is my purchasing power someone else was talking to me um the other day and they're like you know i'm thinking about waiting till next year because prices will drop next year and i'm like guys i don't think prices are going to drop next year because the, from the people that i've been speaking to in manufacturing and stuff like that they're expecting prices to go up next year partly because of kind of these inflationary pressures, partly because of the U.S., uh, the Canadian dollar exchange rate and, and then increased costs due to COVID and that type of stuff. But I'm like, I don't think prices are really going down. So even though if you're invested in things are going up, the, the prices might go up at the same or more. So you're not really ending up further ahead, right? Yeah, the stock market basically has to go up more than the value of the dollar is going down for you to go get ahead. Like it has to outpace the devaluation of the dollar. Otherwise, you're lo it looks like you're ahead, but then you don't realize, oh my gosh, like I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm falling behind. Yeah, like even if, if stock markets are at an all-time high, which is, look, if you own stocks and, and, and you know, it, I'm, we can talk real estate prices or anything. This isn't like an anti-stock thing. It's, but it, even though they're at an all-time high, it doesn't matter. It's what else is happening because happening, where's the purchasing power of that investment? And, and maybe it's further ahead because in some cases, it's going to be further ahead and you ended up further ahead great. And a lot of cases, it's not going to be. Yeah, it's almost like if you're going in the stock market now, just buy the Google, just buy Google, Apple, Facebook, you know, just buy the big ones that are creating. That's what so everyone is doing. Yeah, that's what everyone pretty much is doing. But like, just cut to the chase and get out of any, any of your funds that track an index and just go all in on the big guys because they're making so much income. And like we talk about incomes of the unicorn going forward. So just thinking about the, the debt a little bit, the Congressional Budget Office put out a new report. So if anyone's into this stuff, if you Google this up, the Congressional Budget Office, and look at their September 2020 report, you can find in that report their projections to debt as a percentage of gross domestic product in the U.S. And now they are projecting that it's going to go up to 200% by the year 2050. And the beautiful thing about their projections is six months ago, it wasn't even like close to this. And you can find the March 2020 Congressional Budget Office report still on their website and you know they obviously didn't see a pandemic coming but my point is they never see anything coming like well, they never see any reason to make their debt forecast larger than the least amount of debt possible well the best part of this forecast right here is that for the next 10 years they don't see you going anywhere anyway, it's just yeah, flat, flat. The, the, the percentage of gross domestic product is, is actually flat yeah the debt 
that's the percentage. Like and it's just, it's hilarious. It's and you know what, Nick? If we think about this, when we first started doing an economic update to Rockstar and our circle members, it was the year two thousand eight. In the year two thousand eight, we looked at the data right around then, and and then we peeled it back about a year, and we started kind of our analysis the year before because we were starting to talk about it in two thousand eight. And in two thousand seven, the debt was like eight trillion. In two thousand seven, it was a little bit more than eight trillion. So $8 trillion in 2007. And then we were like, wow, like it's kind of jumping up a lot with this financial crisis. And then 2010, we looked at it again. We're like, whoa, this, this thing looks like it's going to double in the year 20, by the year 2016 or the year 2017. And everyone we were talking with was kind of like dismissive, dismissive of it. They were like, ah, I don't know if it's really going to double. That sounds a little crazy. It took us like 100 years to get to $8 trillion. Really think it's going to $16 trillion? So now today in the year 2020, we are at $26 trillion. So now we're at 26 trillion. So it, it basically tripled in, in, by 2020. So if we go forward and, 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 you know, that's in about a 10 year window, slightly more than 10 years, but in the next 10 years, if it triples again, are we going from 26 trillion to, to 75, to 70, yeah. yeah, what 78. is that? 78 trillion, $78 trillion. But here's the thing. What happens if we're wrong and it's going to increase faster than the previous 10 years? Are we going from 26 trillion? Just hear me out. Like, are we going from 26 trillion to like 110 trillion? Well, who knows? <laughs> but even if you're not wrong, what, what's the matter? Like, maybe it's maybe it's not going to. I mean, I don't th think anyone sees it going down. But let's say it's not the 78 trillion. Let's say it only doubles, and it's what's that? What was it? 26, 52, right? Yeah. So it's yeah. only 52 trillion. Like that's still enormous, right? Right. So like, let's say it doesn't. It doesn't have to triple. You don't have to be wrong on the upside. You can be wrong, and it can be on the downside, and it's still an enormous number. You know. And so, if in in that world, what happens to property prices? Because what happens to real asset prices when the debt in the system is going to triple or the money circulating in the system triples? Does that so mean the only thing I don't know about that is um, is looking in Japan because their property prices haven't moved, stayed so, kind of so flat. That's the one. Yeah. That's the one thing to the counter Cause, argument cause, to that would be what we've seen there. Is from my understanding. Now I don't know that their property prices that well, so I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. I looked into it for an economic update like three years ago. No, it's fairly accurate. But but here's the way I look at it: is that the, the let's let's pick on a you know Barrie Ontario Barrie Ontario might the property price may stay flat but the single family home that was rented out to one family is going to probably be rented out to two families because maybe the income streams dry up in that type of world if you're in, an, in, a, in a recessionary time where you can't get people have so much debt they can't take on more debt consumption goes down the amount of money that you can afford to spend on housing housing decreases so the amount of livable space that you're in kind of changes. So the investor who owns a single family home and is currently renting out that Barry home to a single family now can rent out that, turn that into a duplex and rent it out to two families. Well, that's what's happening now. Like that's already it's, happened. It's, so that's not 10 so, years. Yeah. But that, so that's my point. What happens if that accelerates? And that, you know, that, so the investor who owns that one property is going to generate more income from that one asset, not less income. Yeah. And the property price might not move that much. See, I, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'm like, well, what if the property price is don't move and that doesn't happen. But the, the, so, you know, if again, and I don't know Japan, right? Then I don't know if that was started happening in the properties. No, the, 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 the places already got smaller and smaller. I know they were tiny to begin with. So I don't know what the, the square, the average square footage size of a, of a place changed there. If, if the, if the prices stayed the same, if the unit started getting smaller or not, but I'm looking at, but I do know one difference on this point. I think it might be the same thing I was going to say. What is, was demand. Yeah. It's the population growth. That's, yeah, that, that where I think, that's what I think is the difference. And then that leads to exactly what you're saying. So, yeah, I'm just, I'm pulling it back one step because that's what I don't see. That's what wasn't happening there, the population growth. And if we see the population growth continuing here, which, I mean, the government wants it. They're, they've come out openly they're many, many times. It. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, and it's, it's, it's high on the radar of, because we know from, recent immigrants into Canada that, that we've spoken to who have many friends at home waiting to get in. So we know that it's high on the radar of a lot of people to be able to come to, to Canada and specifically GTA area and, you know, that type of stuff. So yeah, it, that's, that's, that's what I see. And I'm just playing devil's advocate for a second because the, the flip side to this is that everything you're saying is even like, it amplifies it even more. And the debt, the debt does triple again and, that, and then it gets like stupid, but I'm just, I'm just trying to pull things back a little bit. So for anyone listening, he's being like, ah, I don't know, Tom might be able to lunch a little bit. No, so that's completely fair. No, completely fair. And because maybe they do stay flat and then, you know, maybe it's just what you can rent out a property for changes. Maybe, but, and I was going to say, maybe that just stays flat too. It's just with the demand increase, I kind of find it hard to believe 
this is going to be a fascinating 10 years. But to all of this, I think it's why you have to analyze real estate on the income only and never bank on the price going up. Mm -hmm. Just treat that as upside. You but always have to treat that as upside. Something has to change though. With, with easy money, with low interest rates, flooding the market with kind of like new, you know, new money creation, the, the supply not being able to keep up because of government regulation, and then the government begging and and our policies towards population growth through immigration all those things combined it's it it it's you know it's highly unlikely that that, that it's not the rest it's not the kind of stereotypical recipe for a real estate crash that's that's for sure you know what i mean so some there those one of those one or more of those components would really have to change for the the long-term trend to kind of shift downwards, I think. And there's gonna, I don't mean things go straight up. I mean, things go up and down and there's different pockets of different areas and there's different housing types and that type of stuff. But those four underlying kind of foundational pillars really are are, are what's, what's really kind of pressing things along, I think. It is gonna be freaky if real estate does continue into increase at the end of this decade, instead of let's call, let's talk about Oakville for a second, you know, a single family detached four bedroom home, two car garage, let's just call it 1.5 million, okay? So that, let's say, it's, so that home, we're gonna think at the end of this decade, is not 1.5 million, which is already pricey. It's even more probably for that price, probably 1.8 in Oakville. Um, but let's let's say, so that $1.5 million home, that means at the end of this decade, it's if it doubles, it's three. If it triples, it's four and a half. Like you're right, you just can't even, it doesn't even sound reasonable. Well, then there's other segments of the market that catch up, right? So like, it, it, I mean, Typically what happens, like if you look at Toronto, once the detached price got so, so high, then people went, to your point, smaller smaller uh, homes. So they went to the condo market, which then, then the condo market, the price over the last number of years was, was um, increasing so fast. The detached market was suppressed a little bit. It didn't have as much of a price increase. So that prevented it from having the, the run up there because they went to the smaller the smaller property. So maybe that changes... You know, it's, it's again to your point about the the size of the place they're getting. That's what might shift. So so and prevent it from going up to multi millions versus kind of staying lower and, and smaller units catching up and, and making that price gap smaller. The only imagine they want because I'm talking about now. Uh, just to skip ahead for one second now, um, Chairman Powell, the Federal Reserve Chairman, said that a major policy shift is being announced on August 27, 2020. That we're not going to do infl um, inflation targeting anymore. We're going to do average inflation targeting. That means the central bank will be more inclined to allow inflation to run higher than the standard two percent before hiking interest rates. So basically, they've base told all of us, "Hey, we're going to rip you off more than two percent a year. We're going to steal and pillage your savings more than two percent a year." So get ready. Like if I interpret those words, that's really what he's saying there. He's saying it's not going to be 2% a year. We're going to go higher. So now if I flip back to the real estate market and Nick, yeah, if income, no, but now if, because to your point, it's like, yeah, how can people afford a mortgage of like, you know, a, a $2 million mortgage on a $3 million house? It just doesn't make sense. Imagine they just lengthen am uh, amortizations like they did in Japan. Yeah. Then, so a hundred years. Imagine they come up with a hundred year amortization period just, because they just want property prices to buy and sell to get inflation into the market. Then it's like, Holy crap! Then it does happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, look, look. They want it. They want the inflation. Like, it, you know, it's not hard to see if you look. If you actually look, they want this inflation. They, you know, as much as like the the there's there's segments of the the general public that'll be complaining about uh, property prices. They're like, how can you do this? Like, they're affordability. The developers are greedy. Governments governments are doing this. What's wrong with them? You know, what's the, the governments don't come out and say is like, hey, we're actually trying to do this because we need yeah. it. And if we don't do this, like it's going to be, the things are going to be way worse. Now they can't come out and say that. So they kind of try to do it covertly a little bit. You mean they can't come out and say we're trying to screw, screw you, you and <laughs> steal your money? No. Damn, so, so much better if they could just say it. But, but that's but that, and that, that's the wild card because if they're not getting in other factors and they have to go to those extent, then yeah, then everything you're saying, it's game on. And it might be game on anyways. I, again, I'm just playing, I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm just kind of looking at it from a, kind of just the flip side and playing a more cautious approach or devil's advocate because I just try to look at like- No, and, and, and I, I'm not trying to say they are going to double or triple. I'm just hypothetically saying, can you imagine? So I totally respect where you're coming from. Yeah, it makes sense. Like how does this kind of actually work? And then there's this chart, Nick. This is why I think we're all kind of like frogs sitting in a pot of boiling water and nobody really sees what's going on because I think this is a disproven thing. But you know that whole experiment? Do you experiment? think anyone really even knows what that... that really? Yeah. I, don't know. I mean, when you said about it in the office, no one knew what you were talking about. Oh, there's this whole kind of thing that if you put frogs in water and start boiling the water uh, slowly, the idea is that the frogs don't understand the water is going to kill them. So they never jump out of the water until they're boiled to death. 
and I think it's a disproven experiment, but that's kind of the whole analogy I'm trying to use. It's a disproven experiment. I think so, yeah. I think so. But the whole whole idea is that the economy is like that. Like things are getting crazy and crazy and crazy. Nobody sees it happening. But when you can see it happening is this chart. When you pull up the gold price, gold was $35 an ounce in 1971. So I was born in 1973. So pretty much when I was born, it was $35 an ounce. Then in the year 2000, it was 417. Then in the year 2020, $25.50. And the value of the Canadian dollar has dropped 99%. Like the value of our dollar has, in my lifetime, the value of the dollar has dropped 99%. Like where do we go from here? The 1% gets devalued another 99% and you're gone from, like what exactly happens here? I did the math on it too because I didn't believe it either. I'm like, is it really 99%? And yeah, no, it's 99%. I'm looking at it and I'm wondering, I'm, I'm going back to the charts that we did about the, the kind of destruction of the middle class charts when we took real, the average Toronto home to the average Canadian income. And I'm, you know, the gap was closer. And I'm like, I wonder what that percentage is. And I wonder if it lines, I'd be curious to see if it lines up with the 99%. You know, similar to the gold price. Anyways, that's what I was thinking. It's just, it's just interesting. And earlier this year, we saw Warren Buffett, who's made fun of gold forever. And it's why I think the freaking guy should not be put on the mantle that he's put on, is that this is somebody who understands gold's value in the marketplace. But I think for very self-serving purposes, is my own opinion, I don't know the guy, decides to tell everybody gold is not good. It's a tradition. It's a shiny rock, even though it's a metal. And then when crap hits the fan, he sells all his banks except for Bank of America and then loads in and Barrick of gold. So like this is kind of when you see Warren Buffett buying some of Barrick gold, you know, to me, that's like a sign that crap is kind of hitting the fan. And then another thing Nick and I have looked at over the last few years is that there's this business cycle that happens where corporate debt continues to increase. And for, for a lot of the last 10 years, especially the last five years, we look, we've looked at the stock buybacks and the amount of debt that is being incurred by U.S. corporations to do those stock buybacks. And you can kind of see there's this cycle, like leading up to 1990, corporate debt rose really high and then a recession was hit and they drop interest rates to fight that recession. But then what happens in that period is corporate debt doesn't come back to the the levels that it was before that recession. So then when interest rates start climbing up again, the debt climbs up again and it climbs to a higher level in corporate America. And then they drop interest rates when the next recessions hit and the U.S. debt comes down, uh, sorry, the corporate debt comes down. And that was in the NASDAQ deck, uh, tech bubble. So this kind of corporate debt cycle, it goes up and then it comes down a little bit in 1990. Then it goes up to higher than it was before and it comes back again and down again in the years 2001, 2002, 2003. And then it goes up and tries to make a new high in 2007 and 8. Doesn't quite get there. Financial crisis happens and they drop interest rates. And the whole period of dropping interest rates from 1990 to the year 2010, they've gone lower and lower and lower. And now corporate debt spiked up hugely right up until the year 2018, 19, and right into 2020. And they've dropped interest rates to zero and they have no way to get out of this cycle and corporate America is fully indebted. So now we are, this is why I believe we're at this like debt super cycle, that this is no longer a business cycle. The monetary policy can't be adjusted to solve this problem anymore because interest rates can't go any lower. They might try and go negative, but now we're beyond a business cycle. No businesses are being allowed to fail. The banks are never allowed to fail. Now, any, no business is really allowed to fail because the Canadian government, the U.S. government is trying to send money out so everybody stays afloat. Even though that's not perfectly working, that's the attempt. So where do we go from here? And then if you map out this against federal debt in the U.S., federal death, debt, death, federal death, <laughs> federal debt in the U.S. and in Canada just keeps increasing. The debt, just, just as we discussed earlier, the debt just keeps going up and up and up. Our deficit here in Canada this year projected was like 33 or 34 billion. Instead of 33 or 434 billion, it's 340 billion. Yeah, but they they talk about the the carrying costs on it because rates are so low. They're actually spending less money on the care on carrying the debt, servicing the debt than they were in I forget what decade you know, but in the past. So it's not like even though the debt's higher, it's it's actually costing the country less. That logic. I remember Trudeau when he said it to that reporter. Yeah. Don't talk to me about the amount of debt because interest rates are lower. And what are we going to do? Let Canadians suffer? We have to do this. Yeah. But it's just that logic. Like that is just like the craziest logic to me. It just makes no sense. So it's just basically saying, well, we're just going to service it forever. We're never going to pay it back. Is it, that's, that's the logic. It's just like, well, yeah, that's, you know, that's the understanding. Because they're never going to be able to get out of it. Yeah. I... 
I'm, I'm trying to think of a time. I think it was Paul Martin. Wasn't it Jean Chrétien and Paul Martin in the 1990s who kind of fixed us up? I think in the early 1990s, I was working at Terminal 1 as a customs officer during university, right in mid-1990s. And I remember the talk in that period was... Um, uh, the IMF was on the verge of taking over Canada's finances because we had such problems. And I think Paul Martin came in. I think that was that I think era. Was, I should yeah. do a little bit more research to make sure my facts are straight on that particular area. But I think we did go through that area. But yeah, are we ever going to see this again? Also, when you have this much debt in the system, you can't get the economy to, to grow without doing austerity. But if we do austerity and pull things back, everybody's going to cry and no politician's going to really want that. So they're just going to put more money into the system. Like we're in a different era. It's basically a path to socialism. Like in all reality, that's basically the path that takes it down because then people, when people are upset, the government will be like, okay, okay, we're going to do all these, all these programs anyways. We don't have the money. We'll just kind of borrow more money and we'll do them. And then everyone's happy again. And they're like, well, what about me? I need more here. I need more here. And it just takes you down that slippery path. And, and, you know, I'm not for or against socialism as long as it can, you know, I'm just looking for an example of where it's worked successfully. But if you look around a lot of these socialist countries that have gone down this path and done these experiments with their monetary policy, it doesn't end well. It ends in more pain in the future. It seems like things are okay until it hits, and then it's just flipping. It gets, it's just pure destruction. Like a lot of different countries that we've seen in South America and what their currency crisis that they're going through because of those types of policies, right? And the hyperinflation. Who, who citizens? Of, yeah, it was Patrick, one of our members, sent that yeah, thing. That Argentina, per, they're expecting fifty percent inflation this year. Yeah, and then it's going to go down next year. The only 40%. way I see like a universal basic income working out, which is like a you know a socialist type thing, is that if it's the if it's a segue to a better system. Like if it's the last ditch effort, where it's like, okay, citizens, you know what? You can't afford real estate. You can't afford freaking anything. Here's some money, especially on the lower end of the income scale. Here is some money, as long as we're transitioning to a new, better system based on something else. But if we're not transitioning to a new, better system, then I don't know how long the benefit of giving everybody a universal basic income lasts. Like, I think it could last for a couple of years. Like, oh, wow, okay, I have some income. But then flushing more money into the system, like that's going to naturally create some inflation. And then it gets away from them again. Well, look, so we're on look, this weird treadmill. If you look at what happened right now, okay? So look at the last six months of what happened. If you're just flushing money into the system blindly like that, it doesn't work. And the reason why it doesn't work is because the people that got it, everyone that got it, high income earners, low income earners, whatever, whoever, it ends up. We bought with, shit on Amazon. Well, it ends up with the higher, you know, income earners, whether they're asset owners or business owners, because the businesses benefit because they're not paying their employees the payroll. The government's paying the payroll. So the business owner works out. If they're still generating profit, now they get profit with less expense because of that, with the wage subsidy that the government came. So, you know, and I understand the logic behind it. Yeah, so it. you accidentally benefit businesses you're, again. You're, you're benefiting the people that own stuff. So so the, the middle class or the poor people, right, or the lo lower income people, they're not getting the benefit that is supposed to be, that they're supposed to get from it because mm -hmm. it goes to those. And it's, they, might, they might very short term short get term. the benefit. Yeah, yeah. But it's just, and it, it just, and, and it's not that, it, it, what they're doing was wrong and or you know and there was some thought behind it and they had to do it quickly but it's it's that you can't reverse the way the system was set up for the decades previous that created these these types of things and and then you know base base the the policy decisions on that you have to kind of change that system so to your point if we're transitioning to a better system yeah it makes sense i just don't think anyone looks that far ahead and like I, no, you're I right. used to give them more faith, but based on the last five or ten years, what we've seen with with governments and monetary policy and the way they handle these things, it's fly by night. They don't know what the hell they're doing. They're just like, okay, let's try this and see what happens, and then try something else. So there's no there's no forethought, there's no long term thinking in it. It's kind of like, hey, we got to play this game short term and see what happens. I used to think they were smarter than they were, like like outright. I used to I'm like these guys got to have a better idea of what they're doing than than I think. And then based on all their policy decisions, it's tough to make that argument that they do. You mean it wasn't smart to sell all of our country's gold? <laughs> that wasn't a smart thing to do. Who, what, who was in power then? It wasn't uh, Trudeau. That wasn't before. Trudeau, no. I've already was forgotten. It, Harper? it was probably Harper. Yeah, I, th I he think was it was during the Harper before. era. Holy crap. Was it during the conservatives? They swore. Yeah, it's strange. Holy crap, that was a U.S. Man. decision, though, because oh, that yeah. made us totally dependent on the U.S. then for sure now for everything. I'm, I'm, no, I'm fully convinced that was a central bank saying, hey, we need to suppress the price of gold. Okay, we are in the New York, New York Fed that controls a lot of the U.S. gold and the U.S. Federal Reserve. We're not selling our gold. We're too smart for that. Member countries. Okay, Canada, you're the sucker at the table. You sell all your gold. 
the UK sold all their gourd. I think that was gold. That was Gordon Brown. I think in like the early two thousands, he sold it all. Like, yeah. Don't hold me to this. Like three hundred and fifty or four hundred dollars. It was an ounce. such a low. It's a, <laughs> he just sold it. He didn't sell it all. Sorry, I think he, he sold half their reserves. But uh, yeah, but, so he got fleeced. Good. I don't know who got yeah, that. Yeah, but that was crazy. Yeah. That was and crazy. So for anyone out there thinking that it's just the Fed that monetizes the U.S. debt, the Bank of Canada during this whole COVID thing has this on their on their website. I'm just going to read it because they still have it on their website, BankofCanada.ca. It says the interventions um, around the balance sheet expansion, which are, are this: it they involve acquiring financial assets and lending to financial institutions to increase the size of the bank's balance sheet. This balance sheet expansion in conjunction with our other actions, so what other actions being God knows what they're telling us and not telling us, helps get the financial system functioning properly. So it's like, you know, hey, listen, without us just monetizing our country's debt, the financial system won't operate. The whole premise that it can operate properly when it's based on dishonest money that steals my time and my labor at at an articulated 2% a year, which I know it's more than that, is just a farce. The whole thing's just a farce. You can't build a you can't build an honest system on a dishonest money. That's my whole point. I know yeah. that sounds crazy, but yeah, and it, that's what we spoke about before too. And I th- that's part of the problem with the system and the, the asset owners and stuff like that. Because even if it, it's harder and harder for people to get ahead, because even if they do earn and save something and with the hopes of being you know uh, being able to leverage it in the future and, and with their savings, those savings continually get wiped out, and they're getting wiped out faster and faster with these, you know with with what's going on from a monetary standpoint. And that's why they, they can't get further ahead. So you're right. This, you know, the system's just got to change. It's exactly what we were saying before. It's like it, it, you can't. The system's so messed up and has been for decades. We can't make decisions based on that system, thinking that it's going to produce different results. We need a new system, and then we can make decisions based on that with the hopes of getting the different results. Right. And and if you're not familiar with this, over ninety percent of new money enters the system through bank loans. So the reason the real estate market always benefits from these policies is that the way money is flushed into the system has not until this year been, let's send money through CERB directly to the people. It's always been through new bank loads because the interest rates are cheap. So then asset owners and real estate market always benefits first because that's the market that gets the most bank loans and whoever is closest to the money wins. So if you're an employee getting paid, you are not closest to the money so that by the time the money gets to you, you always get a lesser effect. But the real estate market is the closest to where most and the majority of lending happens, and then it benefits the most. So th- this is just kind of a concept that when you, you're hearing about money printing, it's that's why the real estate market benefits the most. The money printing kind of goes out the door through new mortgages. And, you know, it's such an antiquated system. Like even think I was sitting there yesterday. I did a wire transfer yesterday. It cost me 80 bucks. Like Eighty dollars to do a wire transfer. Yeah, fifty bucks. So I think it depends on the amount. Oh, if the amount goes up, it, the Got price it. goes up. But it was, it was it cost me eighty bucks. Oh shit! You're wiring and, a lot of money around the world, eh? And, you're taking uh, off. Yeah, you're you're getting I'm out of high, here. I'm Where are you going? Wired it to a whole. Yeah. A whole Wherever you're going, you better somewhere. quarantine. No, you're going to Grand Cayman, aren't you? So um, you're going to the Cayman Islands. Nick Caradza is going to the Cayman Islands and not telling us. I'm buying. I'm yeah, I was bank. wiring it to a foreign gov- government for citizenship. That's what I was doing. But the. And, and I was just sitting there thinking, I'm like, what an antiquated system that we have to go through that. It takes like this much time to authenticate for this. And, and it's and, a U.S., it's an independent body, but the U.S. controls the system. Yeah. And the fees associated with it. And I'm not just saying from the crypto space, like if you're, you know, if you're transferring some crypto money, but it made me think of what you're saying with, with where money's coming from is, you know, the central bank currencies um, that are coming down the pipe too and how that's going to kind of change things. It's going to be interesting to see the impact that has on these banks. And I know they're now why I was thinking that specifically because they're in bed with the banks. Right. So I'm like, how are they going to do things like that, but then still prevent it from cannibalizing some parts of the banking system? Cause the banks want to protect that as much as possible. Right. Those, those, there's a lot of money at play there. They want to protect, but uh, it just made me think like, it's just such an antiquated system that I was, I was, I, I'm part of to transfer some funds around. Like it's just a mess. It seems hilarious yeah. at 2020. Uh, so this statement I really want to call out is that, uh, from all of our analysis, a fiat-based money system, so basically a money, a money system where you know, the money holds value by government decree. You know, we, we're basically, we all use Canadian dollars because we're forced to pay our taxes in Canadian dollars. That's why we use Canadian dollars. A fiat-based money system rarely collapses from a lack of fiat dollars. And the reason I just want to point this out is that this means that if the system is a little shaky now, it's not going to be for eventually a lack of dollars. 
So the amount of money that's going to be pushed into the system, either directly to citizens through something like UBI, or we'll talk about central bank digital currencies in a second, or the real estate market, or however, is going to be a shitload. Because if the trend continues and the U.S. debt goes from $26 trillion and, and it triples again over the next 10 years and it goes to 78 that is a freaking lot of money coming into the system. So that's what we have to kind of be expecting that's coming our way. And Nick, you know when we share the, the real estate prices, we have this chart, and I know you can't see it if you're listening to this, but if we, we have this chart on house prices from 1969 and how they go up rather aggressively when measured against income growth. Income growth almost stays flat from 1969. There's a couple things happening here. Not only are house prices increasing because of the new money hitting the real estate market first and it's benefiting from the most inflation in that market. Income growth for, I guess, since factories started leaving the US and Canada, so aggressively in the last 20 years for sure. But we, because we've become a global economy, incomes have been competing with jobs all around the world and it's suppressed incomes. So not only is there a gap in incomes versus house prices because house prices or the real estate market gets the money first, it's a very local market, but jobs are no longer a very local market. Jobs have global impact. If you were a factory worker in the Midwest in the US 20 years ago, likely that job has been replaced by a factory worker in Asia somewhere. So you have this kind of deflationary force on income. So there's like two things happening all at once, which is kind of like freaky. And I think it kind of, kind of continues. There's this one chart, Nick, I want to show is that if, if you haven't seen the, the velocity of money right now, if you Google up the St. Louis Federal Reserve velocity of M2 money stock, so it's St. Louis Federal Reserve velocity of M2 money stock, look at that chart. The velocity of money is going straight down in 2020. This is not a good thing when you want inflation. When you want inflation, you want people spending money and you want the money to turn over. But when it's going straight down like that, it means they can put a lot of money into the system. But if nobody's spending it, they're not going to get the economic growth that they want. And the only thing I can think of they will do to try to solve this is put more money into the system. So this is what we have to look forward uh, to over the, over the next little while. And if we go back into history, in the 1930s, in the 1920s, the deficits were, they actually ran surpluses. And then in the Great Depression, they did run rather aggressive deficits when compared to the 20s. But then when, when the 40s hit and they weren't getting the inflation that they needed, the deficits went four and five times what they were in the 1930s. So my thinking is this, and it could be, you know, I'm just extrapolating here and I and just obviously my own opinion on this kind of stuff. But if you look, I'm actually going to ask Lynn Alden. Lynn Alden's coming on the podcast a little bit. I'm going to ask her about the specific point because she does a lot of great analysis on this specific historical point. Is that if this is coming our way, if we're going to have deficits five times than we've ever think we're, we're going to have, like if the $340 billion that we had in Canada this year is going to be maintained for the next five or six years, then the inflation comes, but there's always a lag. So we kind of build up, we build up with new money, we build up with new money, and the inflation didn't come in, in, in the 1940s until like 1946 or 1947, about four or five years after the massive deficit started. So it's like you have to prepare now and get your family prepared now for any hard money you want, any real estate or income that you want to create, because when the inflation comes, it comes fast and furious. So it's just a comparison in the 1940s that I think we need to be, all be aware of. Let me skip forward here, Nick, just a little bit. Something else I want to talk about in the, in the 1940s was this. Remember when we were talking about this chart? Is that if you haven't seen this before, in the 1940s in that period when deficits were going up like crazy, inflation was really weird. Inflation went to like 10% a year in 1942. And then by 1944, it went to like 1%. And it stayed in, in a 1% a year or 2% a year roughly in that range for two years. So inflation went to like 10% a year. Then for two years, it came down. And then in 1947, it went to about 17%. And then in 1950, it went to negative one. It was slightly deflationary. So what I'm, what, well, the reason I want to share this, I really think over the next 10 years, a lot of people think, oh, inflation's just going to like creep up, creep up, creep up, and it's going to maintain itself. No, no, no. I think the next uh, 10 years, real estate prices and, the, and, and inflation, it's going to be a choppy ride where we're going to see things like gold pop up and then shoot back down and then inflation pop up and shoot back down and prices of hard money like gold, like Bitcoin as well, just kind of fly all over the place. 
So this is going to be a choppy 10 years. So if you really want to get into real estate, do it for the right reasons. If you want to get into gold, do it for your own research and the right reasons. If you want to get into Bitcoin, research it and get into it for the right reasons. Because the next 10 years, I think, is going to test all of us. Um, and then, yeah, the only other thing I wanted to talk about is that from everything that we've looked at during that period, anyone holding anything around bonds or cash lost all their purchasing power. There was no purchasing power held on to during that decade of large deficits and inflation going up and down. If you held bonds, you lost purchasing power. They produced no income. They're not scarce assets. Cash lost purchasing power. The cash produced no income, of course, and it wasn't scarce. So if, you know, here's, I think, what we think we can expect over the next little while. If we see aggressive fiscal spending, then inflation is likely in the cards. But if the spending or lending is delayed, so in the U.S. right now, because of the election and they were fighting over that stimulus package and the next stimulus package is being delayed and it looks like it's not going to come out in a big way until February around Valentine's Day, if that's the truth and the economy is not shooting back, like the whole V-shaped recovery is kind of stalled out, if that recovery doesn't shoot right back up and there's no more stimulus in the, in the, in the cards right now, what are we, mid-November? So for November, December, January we are likely going to see some weird deflationary forces hit, hit this in, uh, economy, both in Canada and the US over the next few months. So if we see fiscal spending go, up, go into the system, then yeah, inflation's in the cards. But if it's delayed, so for example, the US Treasury had a treasury mark. Gold came down a few weeks ago because there was a US Treasury auction and the Fed wasn't aggressively buying anymore. And what happened is the yields went up. And when yields go up, gold price comes down. This is what I mean we're gonna see more of. Long-term, I think gold's gonna go up. But in short bursts, we're going to see like up and down swings, right? So it's going to be a really interesting little time. I feel like, you know, Nick, we talk about how we think we're always like in the eye of the storm. And it feels like we're in that eye of the storm right now. Now, or maybe ending. Yeah, it just, it just maybe, seems like I've been, we've been saying that for too long now. So now it's like, no. But I feel like we're coming to the end of it now because we are seeing things like the restaurant, some of the restaurant chains declare. I think next, by next spring, we'll know. Like one, one year after this, this whole thing started. You know, then then we'll see it because by that time we'll have some stimulus numbers coming out. We'll see where, where things are at. Uh, you know, what's what's tough playing in this environment to me is that you know because I'm a strong believer that if I just leave my money in the bank, that um, it it's gonna I'm gonna lose the purchasing power. Like it's just not something I want to do. So like I I don't want to keep you know whatever ten thousand twenty fifty thousand dollars whatever the number is. I don't want to keep my savings just sitting in some bank account someplace because if I want to use that five or ten years from now, that purchasing power is going to be evaporated. So, but then you got to you got to kind of couple that with like okay, so then you got to put your your kind of you know you got to put your uh, stick in the sand somewhere and be like, where am I going to put this to try to protect that? And because when it, wherever you put it, there is some risk involved, whether you're going to buy some real estate assets, because then there, you're, the fear is like, okay, guys, like, you know, what, you know, what if the market kind of goes down a little bit next year or something? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe it will, maybe it won't. I don't know. What if you buy stocks when the market goes down? Yeah, maybe it will, maybe it won't. Gold, same thing when we're talking short term. You were just talking about the short term, it came down. Uh, Bitcoin, same thing. Like, there's risk involved in any of it. So for anyone that's investing, that's where the challenge comes. You're like, okay, I believe in, I, I believe everything that we're talking about and that like I, I feel like the risk of me lo losing my purchasing power is 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 a very real risk and I got to kind of be aware of that and then it's like man how do I protect myself and with the way that I protect myself there's risk involved in any of it and and that's I think the biggest challenge that people face when they when they do this at least people I've spoken to they're like well because they want the sure thing and the only sure thing that I'm seeing is the sure thing is if you leave it in the bank for a prolonged period of time based on on you know everything that we're seeing the purchasing power is going to go down that's the sure thing Everything else is relatively sure um, if the same if the same principles and the same trends occur, but it's the element of risk that a lot of people can't get over because they just feel like it's safe in the bank account, unsafe in other places. Yeah, hearing you say that, it's the whole reason I'm just completely bullish on Bitcoin is because I don't trust your Canadian dollar versus my Bitcoin because I'm just like, they're going to print more of your dollar and they're not printing more of my Bitcoin. We're gonna have a, a we're gonna have a different episode where we're just gonna I'm gonna play the, argue uh, about Bitcoin. Yeah, because I'm because I'm with you, but I I no, just, no it's I fair. Get, yeah, we gotta I talk go, it out. I there's, go to the, the flip side. I'm like, well, there's there's still all sorts of risk associated with that. Like, there's huge amounts of risk associated with that. Just like there's around amounts of risk. You know, okay, anyway. so we'll save it. We'll save it for that. We'll save it for well, that. Well, yeah, because at this uh, this let point, me wrap up. Yeah, let me wrap. Something it's something to be aware of because that's what I see. The number one thing that people are kind of are are thinking about, even if they if they 
if if after they see this type of data, they're like, wow, man, things are like, there's a lot more going on behind the scenes than I thought. And things are kind of a little bit more messed up than we thought. And, you know, because we've been looking at this now in, in a pretty serious way for what, 10 to 12 mm-hmm. years. So it, it, we've, we, we have the benefit of, of hindsight looking back of, uh, and seeing kind of the impact that different things did because we've been looking at it so it's, it, it helps us but um, you know with people just coming into it even if it makes sense there's just some there's the, uh, the uncertainty around it because like, now it looks broken before it was like oh what's happening it looks now, like it's going to be broken yeah. like before it was like you know, look if this happens like it's going to like how are they going to kind of yeah, recover yeah. from this yeah and you're it, thinking it's going to be broken and I'm already to the point where rates are low they're going to try and go negative they're done no sorry I was saying it, before it looked like it was going to be broken oh god whereas it. now it. I agree with you now it, it. it does it yeah. looks broken like it's like now it's just it, they have no tools it's just they're just hanging on by a thread and you're just waiting for that last thread so to break. okay so with that let's wrap up with this thing when we were doing you know when we were pulling our latest data we noticed this on October 9th on the Bank of Canada's website there's this thing that says central bank in the uh, the Bank of International Settlements published the first central bank digital currency report laying out key requirements and this is kind of blowing my mind because i want i just want to pull up a report this is an article on the globe and mail that discussed this as well they said listen to this the bank of canada deputy governor timothy lane said that the shift in spending habits coupled with the speed of technological developments has narrowed the window to deliver a digital currency issued by the central bank so he said this and this is an article published on october 14th of 2020 now listen to the next paragraph on this globe and mail article The comments from an online panel on Wednesday are a turnaround from late February, just before the pandemic struck, when Mr. Lane, so same guy, said there wasn't a compelling case to issue a central bank digital currency. So in February, the deputy governor of our Bank of Canada is like, no, there's no compelling case. Nick, this is to your point where like they have no clue what they're doing. In February, there's no compelling case for a digital currency. Now they have white papers published in conjunction with the Bank of International Settlements. And if you go into the white paper, it's like six other central banks all around the world. And they're all kind of conspiring to put out this digital currency. And it's a beautiful solution because what they're going to be able to do with this is they will have two mechanisms now to give out currency. They can have a wholesale digital currency that goes from like something like the IMF or the World Bank to a country saying, Canada, you're not broke. We just gave you this central bank digital currency and every hundred million of this digital currency, whatever we're going to call it, is worth like eight trillion Canadian dollars. So you're good. Or they can give it to to the citizens directly because they can get the commercial banks in the country of Canada, like TD Bank and RBC to come up with apps because they're not going to get into the app game, it looks like from the white papers when you dig into it. But they're going to get the banks to issue an app. But now the central banks to those apps can issue currency directly to the citizens and the government doesn't have to put more debt on its balance sheet. So now the central banks get to bypass the the country. No politicians look bad because they're not, not adding more debt. And now we have UBI for the world because we can just put it out through a central bank digital currency. And on top of that, it's on a digital ledger. So the central bank can do things like saying, oh, is Nick Karadza not spending his money? Well, Nick, you better spend your money. Otherwise, we're going to crank up that negative interest rate and it's going to it's going to be high. So you better spend that money in short order. Or if you're a young adult, maybe we'll give you an interest rate so you can save a little bit because we care about, quote unquote, care about you. Yeah. Be, what is that? Behavioral economics. Behavioral economics. Right. Yeah, I know, I know. I don't see how that's this not is, coming. This is what Raul Powell talks about a lot. Yeah. And you, when I hear the guy talk about it, I'm like, eh, this is making a lot of sense. It makes, I I, I, I think that it's a certainty. I, I don't know that exactly. I think it's it's a shorter time frame than I initially thought. And I think it's a certainty. Like it, it, it's coming. This is why when I was sitting at the bank, remember when I was talking about the- um, The wire? The wire fee. That's what I was thinking about. I was like, hmm, the central bank digital currency, so it's going to be digital wallets. And it just started making me think like how anti- So while I'm sitting, I have to visit the bank to sit there and do to a To give them a transfer. SWIFT code and an IBAN yeah. number. Yeah. And I was. And like, they I, ask you, what are you sending the money yeah. for? And that's why I was like, man, this is a bro- it's a it's an antiquated system that is like, and 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 that's going to be part of it. Can you imagine and you answered, I'm dealing drugs? I, I, you know, oh do you know how bad I want to? I'm dealing drugs. Why are you wiring the money? I'm a drug dealer. I totally want, I want it. Like I've come so close to saying stuff like that sometimes. Oh I'm just like, what is the reaction going to be? And yeah. then I just like, oh man, are they just going to like freeze my accounts? And, yeah, and yeah. The, the, the regulations. It would be fun to have a discussion oh my God, like that. I've come so close, believe me. Yeah. And, but it's, uh, yeah, that's how I look at it. And then that's just going to be part of it. But I don't see how that stuff's not coming. And the, the, the specific part about incentivizing people at different stages of their lives or depending on how much they're holding and that type of stuff. It's powerful. It's, yeah. It's powerful. And this is, this is, 
this is the problem. Like, and this, this is, is why not I, a good thing. Well, and this is why I think though, there can be two working systems. There can be those of us that want hard money, like gold. And for me more and more, and I know for you as well, it's like you look at this Bitcoin thing, you're like, mm, this thing looks pretty attractive for a lot of reasons. So you can have hard money, but maybe you just play in two worlds. You play in the central bank digital currency world, but there's going to be a group of us around the world that have Bitcoin. And we're almost going to be like this distributed nation state that understands each other. And we're citizens of the world of Bitcoin. And we have our own currency and understand each other. And that within this world, we'll have nation states like Canada, but we're going to have this birth of this other thing where it's like, oh, yeah, I have Bitcoin, you have Bitcoin. Okay, we can trade together. And I, I understand what I'm saying. All kinds of government regulations could be coming. There's tax implications because it's treated like a commodity. So if you do sell it, the government's going to be after you. So I'm generalizing wildly when I say this. But I'm like, let's just go there and have that discussion. This could happen. Because when the internet came out, when I had to wait a half an hour to upload an attachment to send Nick an email and then basically call him and say, Nick, I sent the big attachment to you. Did you get it? Yeah, and then we've 50K. gone from yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah, it was a text document. Yeah, 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 we've gone from that to like Netflix. Do you know what I mean? We've gone from that to like Twitter, basically demolishing journalism and playing a role in the election. Yeah, it's not impossible. It's like, just it's, not it's, impossible. It's definitely, one hundred percent, it's not impossible. And then and there's a lot of barriers who still to it, and, but, but there's a lot of barriers that have already been overcome. Agreed. And I read this book, The Sovereign Individual. I probably read it in around the year 2000. I remember putting that book down thinking, oh my gosh, this book changed my, is very important. It changed my thinking on life forever. And now I've picked it up again and read it again. If you read this book, it's like what these guys call out in the birth of the information age and how nation states will change and the battles that are they're going to see. Like, I don't know who these guys are, but they might be the smartest guys I've ever come across in my life. So if you haven't read that book, read just the first chapter of The Sovereign Individual. But just to sum this up, I just want to kind of read because this is what we do all the time is that to play the game, Nick and I do th three primary things. We want access to cash and liquid, whether that's credit lines or Canadian dollars for emergencies and deflation. Because cash will go up in value in a deflationary environment, and that's a, that is a possible threat. Then we also want hard money. Historically, it's been gold and silver. Now it's gold and Bitcoin. And more and more, I just keep staring at this Bitcoin thing and acquiring more Bitcoin. But it's, 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 it, if you haven't read The Bitcoin Standard by Seyfedina Moose, please grab the freaking book now and read that book. At least the first 72 pages of the book. So hard money. So cash, hard money. And then you need income streams. Nick's gonna, Nick believes in this so strongly. A lot of people are surprised by this. But on Nick's bicep, he's getting a tattoo of a unicorn. And on the unicorn, it's going to say the word income because Nick thinks income is the unicorn of 2020. And to show how important he thinks, and by the way, it's why we like real estate and income properties because income streams, we believe in a shrinking economy are going to be very, very, very valuable. And Nick is getting a unicorn on his bicep why to represent bicep? this. I might as well get it on my forehead. No, dude, wherever you want. I mean, that's aggressive on your, I was happy with the bicep. It's aggressive on your forehead. But as long as the unicorn is doing this thing, what's it called? Is that like a dap thing or whatever? I don't know what you call it when it does this thing. I don't know. I wish someone could see Nick's face looking at me right now. <laughs> I wish and someone, someone could see what you were doing right now. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's bucket number one, cash. Bucket number two, hard money. Definitely for longer term savings. And if you want your savings to go up over time, hard hard money and then income streams in bucket number three that's kind of how we're playing the game i think so we'll it covers it's a it's a conservative way to do it and i think it covers all your bases i guess it's because you can bob and weave through anything that the economy throws yeah, at you it's conservative depending on who you are for some people it's not but you can crank up any of the buckets like if you're just pro real estate okay go go nuts on the real estate but or your income stream could be your own small business like we're not saying real estate income income property is the only way to create income build your own small business from nothing and build an income stream that way and go all in on that bucket. But just be aware that the th you should have something in each one of these buckets. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so we'll wrap it at that and then we'll have our, we'll have Bitcoin battle of the Karadza brothers <laughs> at, at some point going forward. That's it, everyone. Thanks. Hey everyone, so hopefully you enjoyed that. If you want to check out some of what we are doing with Real Estate and Rockstar Inner Circle members as real estate investors, you can check out our next 90-minute free introductory real estate training class by going to rockstarinnercircle.com, clicking on the free investor class button, and you can register for the next class there. That's www.rockstarinnercircle.com. It's a live 90-minute class that Nick and I do about once a month, and we stick on the, the class afterwards to do all the Q&A to answer any questions you have on really anything but typically around real estate in that particular class. That's it for now. Hopefully you're enjoying these things. Until next time, your life, your terms. <laughs>